3: I'm Ido Vock in Berlin.
2: I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C.
3: It's Wednesday, November the 4th.
2: You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman.
3: Thanks for joining us.
2: All right, Ido, thank you for joining me today as guest host as we talk about the state of play, the U.S. presidential election. You know, as we kind of said would likely happen, we don't, at time of recording, have a clear winner or indeed any winner. We had flagged this on Monday, but Biden did not have a blowout victory on Tuesday night, did not win Florida, did not win Ohio, did not win Texas. That is, did not win the states that could have given him a victory the night of. And because in Rust Belt states like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, they are legally prevented from counting the votes that arrive ahead of election day. Before election day, they now have to count you know, the, the mail-in votes, and there are many mail-in votes this year, and they're heavily Democratic. So we're seeing that play out today. We're also seeing Trump, again, as expected, cast dispersions and say, well, why are these mail-in ballots all Democratic? And, and this is being stolen. He actually declared victory last night, which was wildly irresponsible, regardless of which political party you belong to. Anyway, here to unpack all of that with Ido and me back again is data master Ben Walker. Ben, thanks for being with us.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
2: Can I just ask what you thought, what you made of of last night as, as events unfolded?
1: Well, aside from it being extremely tiring, preliminary results, admittedly, but I would say it's probably another bad election for pollsters in the US. Although pollsters said Trump would win Texas, pollsters did say Trump would win Ohio and Iowa. They called Florida wrong. They called well, we don't really know the results yet. They're probably calling Georgia wrong and maybe North Carolina. Again, we don't know the results yet. But the margins of victory, again, preliminary results, suggest that they have once again overstated the Democratic share and understated the Republican. I'll just give you a few little figures at the moment. These are states that are at least 95% counted. So in Ohio, polls suggested Donald Trump would win the state with a two-point lead. At the moment... Trump has an eight point lead. So that's an error of six points. Florida, polls suggested Biden would take the state with three points. Donald Trump won it with three points. So that is a six to seven point error. Arizona really is one of the only states this election where polling got it remarkably on point. Polls said Joe Biden would win the state with 2.8 points, and he actually won it with 3.45 points. Again, early results figures will probably change, but the general picture is this. Polls haven't done too well, particularly in areas... Well, Florida is unique because it has a unique Hispanic electorate. You can't paint the Hispanic electorate in America with such broad brushstrokes when they make up now between one in 10 and one in five voters in Florida. They're a lot more socially conservative on average. And I get the impression pollsters may have just sampled them either incorrectly or sampled their willingness, their enthusiasm to turn out just a little bit incorrectly. It's still all up in the air. But uh, again, not a good night for pollsters.
3: And do you think the polls got it quite as wrong as they will be accused of? Because obviously they got the broad picture wrong, but sometimes they're only off by a couple of points. I mean, it changes the overall picture quite significantly, but is that in and of itself a huge methodological error?
1: It's, again, too early to say because two elections now, pollsters have understated the Trump vote share. It seems to be a particular missampling of white voters in America without a college education. One state I didn't talk about is Wisconsin. Now, again, results aren't fully counted yet, but polling had Wisconsin ahead for Biden, uh, gave Biden a lead of seven points. You even had one poll which gave Biden a 17 point lead, and that was only last week. At the moment, Biden has a 0.7% lead. Okay, this, this is quite a significant miss. Now, at the moment, we don't know what the future holds, but it, I, I, if I had to make a guess, I'd be, I'd be reasonably confident that Biden's going to come away with Michigan, Wisconsin, and probably Pennsylvania. Not sure about Georgia or North Carolina. The polls predicted Biden would win these three Rust Belt states, but the margin by which Biden will win them will be most likely nowhere near to the margins the polls said they
2: would be. I I guess what I would add is that loyal listeners of this program will remember first that I've been like convinced that Trump is going to win this thing, but that failing that Biden would narrowly win. And the reason that I thought it would be narrow is that if you go to these various states, I couldn't fathom, right, the kind of... The kind of leads, like the kind of support for the Democratic candidate, the kind of clear cut support for the Democratic candidate in some of these states, considering that there's also that voting is not always so straightforward in these states. So, you know, you have today we're having reports of like approximately 27 percent of mail-in ballots weren't delivered in Florida. And oh, by the way, there was the whole issue in Florida where in 2018, Floridians voted to enfranchise former felons. And the governor and the state Supreme Court said, well, no, you have to pay off all your legal fees before you can vote. So between just a very polarized but mixed electorate in these states, plus the difficulties of voting in a pandemic, plus the realities of voter suppression in America, it just, I guess my my question has been, do you think that there is uh, like a human component that polls just can't account for? Or am I being overly dramatic?
1: I, I would say poll, for one thing, polls have definitely struggled with is trying to Find the cutoff point between those who voted earlier uh, or via mail-in ballots and those who are voting on the day. Pollsters kind of employed uh, this, some employ this quite weird methodology in which they try to exclude those who said they'd already voted, be it in person or by mail. And the impact that had on the polls is perhaps to the benefit of Biden that didn't materialise. It just, what we're simply seeing here might not necessarily be an understatement of any voters, which I'm kind of contradicting my earlier points here, but we might have not seen an understatement of particular voters. We might be more seeing just a, a failure of methodology here. Uh, polls this time around didn't do as badly as 2016, but they didn't do amazingly either.
3: In terms of the turnout, so we've we've seen that the turnout in this election is historically high. Emily wrote a really, really fantastic lead for the World Review newsletter on this. How has that affected these margins? Because I'm just looking at the at the states which have yet to declare, and some of the margins are, I mean, minuscule, they're 10,000 votes in, in some cases. So does this historically high turnout have something to do with perhaps these errors that we've talked about and the kind of radically different politics that we see?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so when you try to do a, do a poll, do a general voting intention, you make assumptions about the kind of people who are going to turn out. The more people that turn out, if, for example, you have an election in which fifty percent of people turn out, you're going to assume people with a college degree are more likely to turn out than people without. That generally happens. What if you turn out by say to sixty percent? Okay, are you going to make the assumption again that people with a college degree are going to turn out, but to the same ratio as people without? And what we saw actually last night, early exits. Admittedly, numbers could change. Admittedly, but they are settling down now. Suggests that people without a college degree, Hispanics as well, were understated. Pollsters expected Hispanics to turn out uh, to, to represent about, let's say, twelve percent of the electorate, when in reality they represent fifteen percent or something thereabout. It was they 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 made assumptions about who's going to turn out, and they got it pretty wrong. So in Texas, as I understand it, turnout actually went out went up pretty well, and I understand the Democrat strategy was to turn out the Hispanic vote in large enough numbers, but As far as we're seeing at the moment, the share of total voters who are Hispanics is unchanged on 2016, next to no change. So Democrats were turning out Hispanics at the same time as Republicans were turning out their own white base. Really, it was kind of like diminishing returns for either side. And polls made the assumption that that wasn't going to happen because turnout models have in the past proven accurate. It was just this case, it didn't.
3: Can we talk about the Hispanic vote? Because there was one state that was particularly contingent on this, which was Florida. But Trump won it by, it seems, appealing to Cuban-Americans. And there's been a lot of talk of sort of the Hispanic vote shifting towards Trump in a way that probably a lot of people in the commentariat didn't really expect. Do you think that there's a bit more nuance there in like like several different constituencies of Hispanics. And perhaps it doesn't make too much sense to think of the Hispanic vote as one block. Oh,
1: absolutely. As America becomes more diverse, minority groups, well, they become less of a minority group, they become more of their own individual, significant group in US politics. Hispanics can't, as I said before, be painted with broad brushstrokes anymore. They are a significant part of the American electorate. And uh, what we saw last night were swings from Hispanics across the board. In all the states where there were large Hispanic populations, there was a swing as little as two points in one and as much as 10 points in other to Donald Trump. Donald Trump was improving at, in this election, was improving his appeal, if you want to look at it that way, among Hispanic voters in Florida uh, in, in 2016, 35% of Hispanics went for Trump, 62% went for Hillary Clinton. In 2020, 47% of Hispanics in Florida went for President Trump, 52% went for Joe Biden. That is one of the narrowest races among Hispanic voters in any state I think we've ever seen. Not, not once has a Republican come close to winning Hispanics nationally, and as far as I'm aware... They've never come close in a state. Florida is remarkable and it's unique. It is unique because Hispanics in Florida are not the same as Hispanics living in, say, New Mexico or Arizona or Texas. The people living in Florida of a Hispanic background are predominantly Cuban-Americans. Cuban-Americans, when we poll them, when we get their social attitudes, they tend to be a lot more socially conservative than your typical Hispanic voter. Hispanic voters are just as conservative as as the national average, just as conservative as whites. But when it comes to voting intention, they typically split 70-30 for Democrats, right? Those engaged voters, at least. What we've seen now is a jump in turnout, an increase in turnout among Hispanics, probably the largest we've seen ever. And what we've seen is a swing, a swing, not uniformly, more extreme in Florida, but we are seeing a swing from the Democrats to the Republicans. And what we are perhaps observing is voters previously disengaged, Hispanic voters previously disengaged now voting, and those disengaged voters were a lot more conservative than the average, if that makes sense. So as it were, the more Hispanics you turn out, the the, the smaller the returns for the Democrats, as it were. The, the Hispanics are though they still are significantly more likely to vote Democrat than, than their white counterparts, they are slightly less so than uh, four, eight, twelve years ago. Wherever you are in the world,
2: if you're interested in global affairs,
1: you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe.
2: That's just $2 a week in America. There was also a narrative going into this election that Biden was really going to chip away at Trump's support among white voters, right, among white women and among older white voters. And white working class voters. And that didn't seem to happen, at least to the extent that was expected, right? Like the gains that were expected to be made, as far as we know now, I I don't believe were made. Can you speak about why we might have been wrong on that?
1: Yeah, this is again, sort of just something incredibly confusing about polling. The samples, the if you ever look at Polls of white working class voters in America, even some actually pretty detailed ones. Throughout the campaign, we were seeing marked, sustained, significant shifts of white working class voters, i.e. white voters without a college education, from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Some polls were suggesting the margin could be as narrow, i.e. the lead for Trump could be as narrow among that demographic by, you know, 10 points. Others were suggesting 15, 20. What we saw on the night was that Donald Trump there was no change. Next to nothing happened. There was no significant change. Biden perhaps netted a few extra points. Trump consolidated his because we have less support for third parties this election. Really, amongst the white working class base that gave Trump the victory he needed four years ago, there was very little change. What change we did see among white voters is those with a college education, those suburban there was a lot more middle class, so to speak. We saw a shift, probably about five points in Biden's favor from on 2016. So in 2016, Trump won white college educated voters by a few points. Now, early data, again, could change, suggests it's more level pegging, neck and neck.
2: Two other things that we wanted to, to talk about today. The first, third party voters did not really play a role in this election, right? There was no like Jill Stein. I mean there there were people running third party but they were considered there was much less of a narrative about them as a threat to one party or the other in the media they they didn't really seem to make a dent. I personally think that that's because this was such a such a polarized election that people just went with their with their party. I wanted to ask if you guys had theories as to why why we were walking away from third party and whether we will continue to walk away from third party.
1: 2016 was unique. It was basically an unpopularity contest. Hillary Clinton was remarkably unpopular, as was Donald Trump. 2020, slightly different. There was a net favorability towards Joe Biden. There continues to be, even in the exit polls of the survey of voters that actually did vote. There is a net positive for Joe Biden here. I dare say this election is characterised by the number of people who haven't changed their mind and the number of people who, when offering sentiments to pollsters and focus groups, say they are worried and they are cynical and pessimistic. This is an election characterized by a lot of negativity by the voters, not necessarily the candidates. The reason perhaps why third parties aren't doing as well is just simply because there was a lot of discussion post-2016 that Jill Stein might have cost Pennsylvania for Hillary Clinton. Post-election, well, exit polling after the election found that third-party voters genuinely preferred Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. And had you reallocated those votes, Hillary Clinton would have been president. The Rust Belt states would have, in most instances, voted for Hillary Clinton. I just get the impression why third party candidates didn't do too well this election is simply because voters were a lot more cynical a lot more pessimistic a lot more worried about the election result and I, and i guess they regarded it as a lot more important in 2016 did they did they view donald trump as as with as much as much of a threat as they do now not really attitudes have changed
2: so there are three other things that i wanted to flag for listeners as we wrap up the first is that there were some some progressive policies that passed uh, across the nation <laughs> florida even while voting for trump passed a a supermajority of Floridians voted for a $15 minimum wage. Marijuana became legal in New Jersey. Some people were joking or maybe crying, I don't know, on Twitter that, that progressives should run as policies, not as candidates. Which brings me to point two that I want everyone to keep an eye on, which is that if Biden does either narrowly, as I predicted, or less narrowly, as Ben predicted on Monday, we really can't say actually who is more right at this point. So just to be upfront about that at time of recording, if he wins and the and Democrats do not retake the Senate, I personally think it's still it's still consequential, right? Having a president who says count the votes and having a president who says that's stealing an election, that's not the same thing. But the Biden administration will be very curbed in what it can do and the, the kind of big progressive changes that some Democrats were hoping to see, it's not going to happen. And what does that mean for looking to 2022? But the last thing I wanted to speak about today was the Electoral College know, I have a question for you, which is, as a non-American, what does the Electoral College look like to you?
3: I suppose if I were to criticize it too viciously, it would be a little bit hypocritical because in the UK, we have possibly the second most anachronistic electoral system after yours. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but no, but the Electoral College, it just seems absurd that literally millions of voters in California Their votes are just taken for granted, and likewise, Republicans in Alabama or what have you. While everything hinges on like 20,000 votes in Pennsylvania. I mean, this kind of, it just seems like an an anachronism. I'm, I'm curious what Ben thinks about it. But for me, the most worrying part of it is that it's a mechanism to contribute to minoritarian rule. And what I mean by that is that the Republican candidate for president has lost seven of the last eight Presidential elections, but has won two and possibly three, depending on how this goes, elections. And so, so it's a mechanism to entrench the power of a minority. Admittedly, you know, not a tiny minority, but consistently the Republicans seem to get fewer votes and yet end up with more of the power of the federal government than Democrats and the majority, and more voters who vote for Democrats. And from the outside, that seems absurd to me.
2: As a New Yorker living in D.C., I obviously agree with all of that. But Ben, what does it look like to you from a from a data standpoint, right? Like, does it mean that national polls are basically useless because it doesn't like Joe Biden, I believe, just even today received the most popular votes of any candidate in U.S. history? And it doesn't matter because, I mean, the winner of the popular vote is like winner of a participation trophy. It it has it has equal bearing on whether you get to the White House.
1: It, it, yeah, congratulations, you have participated. Congratulations, you won the most votes in the country <laughs> and you won the election. In the UK, we've had instances like that before, where we've had parties come second on total votes, but, you know, still win the general election. We had that a few times in the UK, but not to the scale as what we're seeing in the US. Of course, this is, I suppose, is down to your history, right? You, you have states. You have states that aren't proportionally made up you have in america basically a lot a lot of votes being built up for joe biden in states he doesn't need to win you could win every single city in the united states but how many states that actually wins you is not really that much right i think i remember looking at the data data for 2016 i think hillary clinton won almost every single major city major population center apart from a few in the the midwest and the flyover estates. And again, lost the election. It's, uh, national polls don't matter as much when, if, for example, your candidate is appealing to a base, and that base is concentrated most in, say, New York, DC, Los Angeles, elsewhere, it doesn't matter as much anymore. Because those votes, your, your appeal is to a base concentrated in very few states. From a UK perspective... And I, I can appreciate discussion about the US Constitution is likely to spark a civil war in your country. But it does honestly feel as if you would have a much representative and perhaps a slightly more engaged and enthused electorate if you were to operate off the view that either states should be proportionate to the vote the, the population size or eligible electorate, or you should just do away with the electoral college system altogether.
2: We do not have a, you ask us today, because this is a a very special episode, but we are going to do a lightning round, which is what is each of our top takeaways from what we know so far about the 2020 election. Ben, as our guest, we will start with you.
1: I would want to do either one or two, and it's kind kind of this, basically, we don't know easy, broad, brushstroke stereotypes about certain voters no longer apply. They no longer work. Donald Trump's vote in 2016, one in 10 of it, at least was non-white, that's increased, that's turned up closer to 15, maybe to 20% this time round. That's where Hispanics can no longer be cast with broad brushstroke aspersions. We're we're in a sort of less demographically polarised world,
3: but a more politically polarised world.
2: Oh, well said Ben. All right, Ido.
3: My takeaway from this would be that American institutions are just not really built for being questioned and fundamentally having a candidate who just does not accept the fundamental norm that the loser concedes power. And I think what's, well, we'll see what happens over the days to come. But it's quite astonishing that Trump has cast doubts over the results, pretty much just by like tweeting and saying that the results are fraudulent. I mean, there's not that much organisation there. He's just said they're fraudulent. And that has cast American institutions into a pretty, well, we'll see what happens, but it it seems a pretty deep crisis. And yours?
2: Yeah, mine is related to yours. And it's that Trumpism doesn't fit within the GOP. Because what we've seen so far is that it seems like, at least at present, Republican officials are not saying, yes, there was massive fraud. And even Fox News said last night, said, oh, the votes need to be counted. But Trump supporters are still saying that if Biden wins, it's because he stole the election. That's millions of people who are going to believe that. And I don't know how American, you know, American democracy or American republicanism, small r republicanism, I don't see a clear path back from that. I think the faith in our, not to be like, and I wrote this in my column, but in my column out today, I said that, you know, Joe Biden says, just keep the faith guys, but like faith is tested. And this is a very... A serious test for faith in our democracy. I think some people will look at last night and think like, hey, the system works. And I'm not one of those people.
1: Emily, just as a quick question, really, it seems pretty likely that, that Joe Biden will win Michigan, Wisconsin, and probably Pennsylvania. What is going to happen to the Republican Party in the post-Trump era, if there is going to be a post-Trump era?
2: Yeah, I don't know that we're in a post-Trump era, first of all. He's not going anywhere. He will continue to be a, a presence in American political life. I also think that there were a bunch of people before this election who said that no matter what happened, this would be a cause for soul-searching within the GOP, that they would have to think about how to reach out to different types of people, et cetera, et cetera. That is, is not the case, right? Especially if they keep the Senate, and especially if it's as close as it seems it's going to be. And given that they're not ideologically, but if, if they... and even with a strong majority of white support, there are many people today poised to be like, well, look, we are diversifying. You know, we are, we are getting different kinds of people to vote for us, which is true to a certain extent. And so I think that the, the bigotry and the culture wars and the identity politics that has come to mark the Republican Party in the Trump era, I don't think that's going away. And I think it will continue to amplify and continue to be, I don't think this is fear mongering. I think it's descriptive. It will continue to be a destructive force in American civic life. That's my grim answer to that. Ito, <laughs> take us out.
3: Please. Continue to follow our coverage of the election at newstatesman.com US-election-2020. There's going to be a lot more where that came from. And tune in Friday for our regular episode featuring New Statesman contributor Gary Young.
2: We need to thank Ben Walker for being so generous with his time this week. Ben, thank you so much. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode of The World Review, or if you didn't really enjoy it, but it like made you feel away, tell your friends, tell your family. Tell your acquaintances, tell your enemies, Jeremy's off. You can't yell at me for that line. Just kidding, he wouldn't. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com.